Welcome to the One Life Podcast, where we have rare but vital conversations about Jesus. Hey everyone, welcome to the One Life Podcast. One Life is a startup church here in Nashville, Tennessee. Our mission is to build extended families of disciples that live on mission together. My name is Tiffany Ketchum, and here with me is my husband and co-host, Tim Ketchum. Hey, everybody. We're really glad you're listening, and let's see, we're on episode 23. Yeah, moving right along. We started in Genesis 3 last time, and we talked about the serpent, the enemy, the villain. Yeah, he's got multiple names, doesn't he? <laughs> I don't know why. I just <laughs> named multiple things. Yeah, we, we wanted to introduce the villain and, and have the primary focus on, because every story has a villain and a hero. You know, one of the things that a villain does is that they create chaos and they bring damage. They're trying to disrupt something. And so we wanted to get sort of a close-up look at the villain. And then today we're actually going to go into a little bit about what does the villain try to accomplish and what do they actually accomplish in Adam and Eve's life. And so we're going to look a little bit at the tragedy of what the villain accomplishes Yes, we are in the garden in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Yes. And we have just finished with the serpent talking to Eve. Yeah, so we're going to start with Genesis 3, verse 6, and go all the way through verse 13. And this is sort of chronicling what Adam and Eve do in response to the temptation that the serpent, the Nakash, brings out. Let's do it. Verse 6 of chapter 3 in Genesis When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God had called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. One thing I want to point out here, just real quickly, is that there wasn't actually a lot for the serpent to tempt them with. They're in paradise, they're in a garden. They lots have, of good things. Lots of good things. They're not, there's no lack. There's no deficit. And he essentially comes on the scene and he identifies one thing that they don't have, which is the knowledge of good and evil. They basically summarize this by saying that she was pursuing wisdom, that she saw that the tree was able to make one wise. It's sort of characteristic of the strategy of the enemy to get us to pursue something that is good, but to pursue it in our own way, on our own terms, and in our own timing. 
In other words, looking for a shortcut, that there's actually a process, there's a way in which we're supposed to get access to that, but then the temptation is actually to seize it prematurely. And this is essentially what the enemy does. He says, hey, why don't you get what is yours? Go after something that God wants you to have, but do it in your own tactics, with your own strategy. Just do it now. (laughs) Don't wait for it. Right. Yeah, I think we talked about that a little bit last time. Mm -hmm. And just listening to God and learning to walk the steps that he's telling us to walk as opposed to knowing that something as good is coming, but trying to grab it too soon. There's there's actually one article I've read that characterizes Adam and Eve's sin as impatience, that they're not patient with the process that God has got them in. That's a great way to put it. It's one of the ways that you know that the enemy is at work is when you get this nervous anxiousness. I got to do something now. I got to do something now. I got to make it happen. And that's really from the enemy. Faith and trust is always going to bring peace. It's always going to bring a sense of uh, calmness. We could probably go on that for a long time, right? That's true. And, and yeah. kind of break that down. Yeah, we have more to talk about. Yeah. So basically, the Adam and Eve already knew about good, but they did not know about evil. And if we remember the definition of evil, it's some form of deficit. It's some form of dysfunction or even something that gets damaged. And so what we want to do is we just kind of go through this passage and say, where do we see dysfunction? Where do we see deficit at work? Is there anything that was damaged? And just kind of get a feel for what what exactly was the enemy trying to create in Adam and Eve and in their situation. One of the first things we see is that when they when they ate the fruit, it says that their eyes were opened and they realized or they saw that they were naked. And this is really the first time that they're sort of noticing or getting a sense that something is missing, that something is not the way it's supposed to be. And what they do is they go and grab fig leaves and sew them together and create aprons, or you know maybe it's the first set of overalls <laughs> that uh, that were ever made. <laughs> overalls. <laughs> <laughs> But they're basically covering something up, and it says that they um, they had, you know, before it says that they were naked and not ashamed, and now it says that they have shame. And, you know, just to put some definition to this, there's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is that feeling that you have done something wrong, whereas shame is the feeling that I am wrong. In other words, there's something flawed about me. And it's it's not that you've done something, it's that you are something. Mm, so they're covering themselves up. They're not covering up something that they did. That's right. It's turning inward now. It's actually something about their very nature. Their bodies or their sense of self has got a brokenness to it now, or at least they perceive it to be that way. And they compensate for that by covering themselves up. And, you know, this is a very common thing that we all do, is that when there's a part of us that we feel like is not, you know, doesn't meet the standards of the group that we're in, or it doesn't 
you know, we feel like we would get rejected if that part of us were actually shown to other people. We hide that and we cover it up and we use fig leaves, you know, metaphorically, you know, we may put on a front, we may seclude ourselves from other people, we may hide certain parts of ourselves from other people in conversation, selectively editing our stories because we're afraid that we would get rejected. And so what they're doing physically with their bodies, we do psychologically and spiritually and relationally in our everyday lives. We, we try to cover up the parts of ourselves that we think are, are less than or dysfunctional. Yeah, that's really true, Tim. And so here we see them not only covering themselves up and sort of hiding from each other, but then we see them hide from God even. Yeah, the, if, if we keep in mind this whole thing about the garden being like a tabernacle, and this is a meeting place between Adam and Eve and God, and so what God does is he comes to meet with them again. And I'm guessing he meets with them daily, at least once a day. <laughs> um, <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, we don't know how often they met together, like formally met. But it says that they heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And it says that when they heard him walking, they went and hid themselves in the trees. You know, God is wanting to interact with them. He's pursuing them. And presumably he knows what's already happened. Presumably he already has been watching this or... He's already in the know, presumably. It doesn't say that he did or that he does, but that's just kind of something that we think because he's God. Right. We would assume he would know. Right. So he comes looking for them, and they hide themselves. And it, it says that they, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And what's interesting about this Hebrew term for presence is that it also means face. And so like when you're in relationship with somebody, you're not really... You're in relationship with all of them, but the way that you interact with somebody is typically face-to-face. There was something about them not wanting to see God's face. Kind of like that moment where you don't want to see the look on someone's face when you've disappointed them. Or you feel like they're going to have, they're going to be angry or they're going to be upset and you, you do not want to see that look. And that's what they're trying to avoid. They, they have this fear of how's God going to respond? I don't think I want to be around when he finds out. I think this is another form of evil, though. Another form of deficit is that they're creating distance between themselves and God. And instead of going to God and saying, we messed up, we're in need, we don't know how to deal with this, they hide. They move away from God. And wow, isn't this our default response when we have pain or brokenness or we feel guilty or shame? Our default response is not to turn towards God's face. It's actually to run away from him, which actually makes the problem worse, right? It just, it it adds to the dysfunction. It adds to the deficit that's already there. This evil that they are now coming to know, it's not just deficits and dysfunctions in themselves or between one another. It's also between them and God. And it's just infecting everything. It's all over the place. 
it's it's kind of like a like a virus. It's it's going everywhere. It's seeping into everything. Absolutely right, Tim. We we really do this even from a young age with a kid and a parent. I always I just keep coming back to this whole thing with the a child and the parent hmm. <laughs> as we're as we're working through this. But a child may have a great mom or dad, mm. yet there's something that they feel like they're going to receive rejection or they feel like like somehow shame about something they did or, Mm. you know, and they hide, they go and hide or they run, run out, run away, you know, in extreme situations Mm -hmm. or, you know, even just hiding their face, you know, so it's definitely something that we tend to do. Yeah. So how else do we see evil here in this passage? Well, one of the things that kind of hit me when I was reading through this is that Adam identifies himself by his condition. Like he says, I heard your voice, uh, the sound of your voice in the garden, and I hid myself because I was naked. And I just thought to myself, you know, we, we, we do that too. We look at some form of deficit in our life, uh, you know, the something that we're not, and we're comparing ourselves with something or maybe a previous part of our life where we were one thing, but now we're older and now we're not that thing. Or we may compare ourselves to other people and I'm not this, I'm not that. And that becomes an identity for us. And then we bring that into our relationship with God. And we come to God with that identity of our condition, our brokenness, whatever dysfunction or deficit we have. And I just think it's it's kind of revealing that Everything that's going on here in chapter three, you know, if regardless of how you date the world or whatever, it's at least 6,000 years ago. And this, this stuff is not ancient. It's happening all the time in our day. These same symptoms of evil are present with us today because there's a continuity in our human nature with Adam and Eve. The human nature is still the same that it was back then. Yeah, and the interesting thing is it says, he said, I'm afraid because I'm naked. Really, there's nothing that we know of that he would really need to be afraid of of God even at this point. Right. Like, so, yeah, it's just interesting how deep the lie can go from the enemy Mm. to make us question. Yeah, totally. I think one more thing we'll identify and then we'll jump up to the New Testament to bridge this is, of course, when God basically says, hey, you know, like what happened? And he passes the buck, right? He says, well, the woman that you gave me. (laughs) In other words, he blames God for the decision that he made. And this is very typical of us today, too. Uh, There's actually something in the Proverbs that talks about you know, a man's ways rebel against the Lord, and yet he rages against the Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, he's wicked, makes bad choices, but then he turns to God and just, you know, vents on God as if God is the one causing that. Mm-hmm. And then he turns to the woman and says, what have you done? And instead of her owning it, she says, well, the serpent deceived me, and therefore I ate. The thing that comes to mind for me with this is that you know, there's potentially, it's potentially too painful to own the responsibility that there's, there's something driving them blaming the other person. And there's, there is this guilt, there is this shame 
And the sense here is that you're offloading this onto someone else. Something that actually originated with you, you're putting it on someone else and blaming them. And this is sort of like the first signs we see in the scriptures about scapegoating, about projecting onto other people, things that actually belong to you. So there's there's definitely some dysfunctional relational dynamics going on here. Mm. Yeah, and I think even now we we do the same thing as Eve did. We say, well, the devil made me do it. Right. But, you know, actually we really do say that seriously sometimes, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of a, a saying, but I think we do think, well, if the enemy didn't tempt me in this way or if this wasn't put in front of me, then I wouldn't have done it. True. So... <laughs> It's like all these things uh, just continue. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a, a repeat episode. Maybe the characters have changed, but the, it's the same script. Mm-hmm. It's the same episode we're watching over and over again. Right, it really is. And you said we're um, going to also jump to the New Testament for a minute. Yeah, we're going to look at Matthew 4. And this is an episode in Jesus' life where the devil comes to tempt him in the wilderness after he's been fasting for 40 days and it says that he was hungry and this is the temptation that the devil brings to him if you are the son of god command these stones to become bread and i just find i find it kind of interesting that we're dealing with food here just like in the garden there was a temptation relating to food this is like a very personal encounter with the devil very much like genesis 3 And remember, Jesus has a human body. He has these same desires. He's obviously hungry here. So he has all of those things as well. Yes. And of course, the nature of temptation is to pursue something that's legitimate and good, but to do it in illegitimate ways, to do it prematurely or to do it in your own strategy. Mm -hmm. And this is very much how the enemy is tempting Jesus. Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's sort of a comparison here between Jesus' temptation and the temptation with Adam and Eve. The temptation for Adam and Eve is to basically skip the developmental process, to fast forward it, and to subvert and go around the lengthy process that would qualify them to receive that fruit at some point in the future. And if you think about what Satan is doing with Jesus, is he's also wanting him to skip the process. The very nature of the temptation is to take a stone and turn it into bread. And, you know, if you're going to make bread, it's, a, it's multiple steps in a process to create bread. And he's basically saying, hey, Jesus, you can take the fast track. You don't have to go through all those stages. You don't have to participate in the developmental process, in the agricultural process of creating bread. It's it's just a very similar temptation that Jesus is resisting here. And the way Jesus responds to this temptation, I think, is insightful because he doesn't say bread is bad. He doesn't, you know, demonize the bread But he says, it's okay to pursue bread, but that's not the only thing you're supposed to be pursuing. The words that come from the mouth of God, the spoken words of God to us, are supposed to guide us as we pursue a good goal. And this is the the brilliance and the discipline of Jesus, is to not let his fleshly desires dictate 
how he pursues a good goal, that he lets the words of God guide him. In other words, he's letting God father him into maturity and to stay the course and to continue the developmental process. He's going to get bread, but it's going to be after the 40 days. And there's, there's a timing issue here. He's brilliant in the way that he is able to follow God through the process. Yeah, this is just like one little glimpse at Jesus and what he does in his life. And it's pretty amazing. This is just one little bitty thing. But over and over he does this and he continues through this process of always drawing near to God and choosing to live off of God's words and what he says and not choose his own path. Yeah, it's a great point. And I wish there was maybe like a more vivid illustration of Jesus drawing close to God as he works through this broken human nature that he received from his mother. We don't really have like, you know, super explicit statements about that. But the logic of the incarnation is that Jesus united his human nature with his divine nature. And he kept pulling that human nature into oneness and communion with his divine nature, which included his relationship with the Father and the Spirit. You know, one of those things had to give. One of those things had to move. Either his divine nature would be conformed to his human nature, or his human nature would be conformed to his divine nature. Really, through the incarnation, he is drawing his humanity closer and closer and closer into oneness and alignment with the divine nature, which is exactly the opposite of what our human nature wants to do. Our human nature wants to move away from God, rebel against God, seek our own path. And yet Jesus successfully bends his human nature back towards God and brings it into alignment with God. And by doing that, he repairs his human nature. He heals it. He saves it. He transforms it. Yes, what Jesus does is truly amazing. And just a note of practicality here. Notice that he goes directly to God's word to him when he is feeling tempted, when he is feeling like a lie is coming on. He goes back to what God has told him and he proclaims it. And so Mm. I think that's a, a good word for us today to proclaim God's word to us when we're feeling shame, when we're feeling tempted to pursue a path that may be too soon or maybe at our own pace. We too have God's words and we can stand on them like Jesus does. So we are definitely over time. So (laughs) (laughs) we are going to close it out. Thank you guys for listening so much and we will catch you next time.